it's important to understand that white people haven't been exposed to genocides, systemic racism, assimilation programs and boarding schools. Um, maybe there are some who think that perhaps capitalism had some aspects of that, or but it's, it's a different story, it's a different discussion. Let's leave that out for a moment. The important thing is that we have also been exposed to a mind colonization, to a, an a colonization of our ways of knowing and our ways of perceiving the world. Because if you go back a couple of hundred years, you'd find that people in the countryside, in some place in Europe, probably also North America, would have an animist knowledge system where stones, trees, rivers would be inhabited by spirit beings. Today on the show, I welcome Nordic animist scholar and expert Rune Jarno Rasmussen. Rune is a historian of religion and has a PhD from Uppsala University in Sweden. In our conversation, we discuss his work bringing animist practices into a modern context and how animism, ancestor work, and developing connection to the land can be experienced as a spiritual, cultural, and activist practice. All today on the Sounds of Sand podcast, presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Well, welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast, Rune. Thank you very much. And, uh, I feel like I will do a really bad job of pronouncing your full name. So would you mind saying your full name for us? <laughs> no problem with bad pronunciation. My name is uh, Rune, Rune Janu Rasmussen. <laughs> so okay. yeah, I, I'm, you mostly just pronounce my name in English because you know, it makes more okay. sense like that. <laughs> Instead of, yeah, so welcome. Um, before we get into Nordic animism and your practice, I was just kind of curious about your background a bit. Did you grow up uh, with the traditions of Nordic animism or is it something you came to as an adult? Um, I would say it's mainly something I came to as an adult. Uh, Scandinavia is generally very modernized and and, uh, secular, uh, particularly Southern Scandinavia where I'm from. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that I was brought up to with to a very large extent. Um, I, I do come from um, a kind of a uh, background. I grew up fairly secular, but my family has background in a, in a, in a, kind of special kind of Christianity that's normal here, which is actually very linked to uh, pre-Christian ideas. It kind of builds or kind of wants to build pre-Christian ideas into its its matrix. But that's a little bit of its own rather weird story that that um, <laughs> that we have Christianity in, in Denmark, where I'm from, that actually sees heathen religion as kind of the Old Testament of, <laughs> of our people. But uh, so I grew up a little bit on that side, I, I did get that a little bit, but but it's I, I wouldn't call that growing up into Nordic animism. I'd say you're you're referencing maybe some of the pagan roots that were pre-Christian that Christianity sort of co-opted to 
to make into what we now know as Christianity? I think that would be a slightly different thing, a d- different period. Uh, th- this particular kind of Christianity uh, emerged in the 19th century and had this national romanticist bend where it looked very much to this glorious past and and therefore sort of wanted to take in the old mythologies and so on. Um, But what you'd be talking about there is more like what what perhaps happened in the Middle Ages when Christian Christianity arrived and would then be perhaps uh, taking in specific motifs, which is something that you've seen you'd see a lot in Northern Europe, and you also see sometimes that people would exert um, cultural resilience through that. So a little bit in, in a similar way as people in Afro-diasporic religions identify their voodoos or their loas, their orisha deities with Catholic saints. You, you saw similar tendencies in Northern Europe. Uh, but, that, so, so, but these are kind of two different periods in history. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, I was imagining sort of very ancient <laughs> when you when you said that. Uh, cool. So yeah, let's get into the sort of heart of what you do in Nordic animism. Could you give us a very v- general overview of what it is and how, how you your relation to it? The like the basic idea is this: people today are in the process of realizing that indigenous peoples are significantly less destructive to the planet than the rest of us, or the rest of us are significantly more destructive to planet than the indigenous peoples. And that means that we are, in a sense, called to reflect on our own backgrounds as your descended people, to think, okay, so perhaps we have similar things in our background ourselves. And lo and behold, we do. Uh, This complex of... Sometimes will people will talk about culture of land connectedness, animism, custodianship, uh, and these uh, this kind of culture that keeps humans human community in some sort of less destructive relation to nature. That is indeed something that many human communities, if not all human communities, have in their background. So there's not really any moral or methodological or theoretical or even political reason that uh, the kind of people that are usually racialized as white shouldn't be asking them, asking ourselves, oh, perhaps we can sort of decolonize our our whiteness in in an, in an attempt to refine these kind of uh, um, animist ways of knowing, uh, traditional ways of knowing uh, that might uh, lead us towards less destructive ways of being in the world, and that is basically what Nordic animism is. It's an attempt to try to do that, and to try to do it in ways that are. Uh, I hope, uh, uh, politically and morally legitimate. They should be based on on compromising respect for, uh, for instance, people of all kinds of observances, be that sexual or racial or religious or cultural or uh, uh, whatever uh, kind of subjectivity that people uh, that people have. Right. So that's basically the. The, the 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 starting point of wanting to think with Nordic animism. Can we decolonize out of this rather problematic 
whiteness that we are encased in that is locking us in to uh, specific ways of being specific perceptions and also specific ways of relating to the world ways of relating to the world that by now i think most of us would probably agree that they have shown to be rather apocalyptically cataclysmically destructive because it's not a little problem that our global civilization is facing right now. In fact, it's the biggest collapse in the history of life for 65 million years, which is a period of time that is about 12,000 times longer than the entirety of human history, right? Human history began when with writing, the invention of writing in ancient Sumer. So, you know, the kind of consumer civilization that uh, primarily the Eurocentric uh, culture sphere has imposed on the world has had, you know, uh, consequences that are so apocalyptically catastrophic that it can hardly be overstated. And uh, so, <laughs> so that, 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 that's sort of the, 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 the base line for saying, okay, so can we think ourselves in different ways? Um, and you could say this is also, in fact, a way of trying to respond to, uh, I would say, dialogues that are playing out on a macro level in the world today, where a lot of, for instance, indigenous voices are actually asking uh, white people to reflect on their culture in indigenous ways. And that does imply some rather serious problems going down that road, but I'm sort of trying to tackle some of those problems. Um, yeah. Nice. That's, that's beautiful. Cause that gives us a bit of the what, but also the why of, of why is this work so important these days? And just for the context of this conversation and, and the way that we're using the term, so when we say decolonization, how does that manifest itself in Nordic animism? Yeah, that's a really good and important question because when we're talking about decolonization in the context of white people, it's important to just define how we, for instance, are not colonized. So yeah, it's important to understand that white people haven't been exposed to genocides, systemic racism, assimilation programs and boarding schools. Um, maybe there are some who think that perhaps capitalism has some aspects of that, or but it's, it's a different story. It's a different discussion. Let's leave that out for a moment. The important thing is that we have also been exposed to a mind colonization, to a, an a colonization of our ways of knowing and our ways of perceiving the world. Because if you go back a couple of hundred years, you'd find that people in the countryside in some place in Europe, probably also North America, would have an animist knowledge system where stones, trees, rivers would be inhabited by uh, spirit beings. However, that was then culturally subjected to a rather harsh judgment that 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 was not okay. That was not the right way of being a modern uh, white person. So that way of knowing, these ways of knowing, has been very steeply rejected and pushed out of our uh, our self-image and our our knowledge system. And that is a colonizing process, and it has 
played out with the same tools, the same judgmental stereotypes and so on, which was applied on on other people, uh, peoples in other parts of the world. So if peasants somewhere in Europe were uh, engaging spirit beings in, in, in stones and mounds and, and rivers, then scholars, for instance, representing elites would say they are as primitive as African fetishists. You know, even an almost explicit racial judgment on actual your descendants that are not really complying with how you're supposed to be if you're supposed to be a proper white person. See what I'm saying? Right. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, the word animism is sort of uh, coming into vogue now, like in sort of spiritual and social justice circles. But correct me if I'm wrong, the, the word animism was quite pejorative in the past, right? Like it was I'm not sure. Yeah, well, it, it was part of an evolutionist. It came about as part of an evolutionist understanding of uh, human culture. And that was an understanding in which human culture moved from animism and upwards. <laughs> so animism was sort of the ground zero of being human. And it was seen as something infantile and, and uh, uh, backwards. So that would then advance towards being more and more advanced until being modern European, which was then sort of the pinnacle of humanity, right? So yes, that is the, like, in terms of research history, that is where animism started. Um, but during the, um, uh, the, the late part of the 20th century, this word has then been taken back by researchers with much more sympathetic views on animism, um, particularly a British scholar named Graham Harvey, uh, but also a very, uh, very important uh, North American anthropologist named Irving Hallowell. Um, well, I'm actually not sure he was working specifically with animism, but he was part of creating these new understandings of animism that have uh, become popular today. So yeah, the uh, animism started as, well, as a very problematic term, but one that has been retained. But I would also say that like, when we talk about cultural history and terms that define something in culture, I think it's probably almost difficult to find terms that are not problematic. I think the term religion is problematic. The term magic, also problematic. <laughs> and uh, so, um, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and so and when you frame it as Nordic animism, I'm just kind of curious too. Is is there a universality to animism across the globe, or is there something specific in Nordic animism? Well, I think there is the universality to animism that it's always very local and very culture specific, um, and uh, so like wherever you have humans, you will have. Or often you will have animist practices and these animist practices are they 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 inscribe these humans with relation in relation with the the ecosystem in which they exist so uh, and that of course means that you are relating to different ecosystems and you're also relating in different ways if you are in um in uh, the northeastern part, part of uh, North America, uh, wild rice 
is a really important plant that give people life. So there will be stories about how wild rice uh, is a sacred plant. Um, and uh, people will be relating with their landscapes by tobacco, which is a way of sharing tobacco is a way of uh, building relation. If you're in Northern Europe, uh, rye is a really important plant that give people life and you'll have rituals that uh, ceremonialize the rye as a deity, a life bringing, life giving guest that people are receiving in when, when the rye harvest is brought in and singing and they will be uh, forming it into a deity that they will be uh, celebrating and people will have uh, like in North America they have a mean means of sharing which is not tobacco but beer so beer in Northern Europe plays an almost identical role sometimes as tobacco has played in, in or plays in North America so you see that there are different forms uh, but sometimes these forms can be very similar. Sometimes they can also be very different, but these are just examples of, of very similar um, kinds of animism. So when I'm talking about Nordic animism, it's, it's because uh, I, want, I want to talk about it in a, a frame where a specific group of people can relate to it and uh, where I also has, have a legitimacy to talk about it because I'm from this part of the world. So, uh, so a good way of starting to talk about animism is to say, okay, this, this is, is a way of thinking that kind of comes from here and belongs here. And, um, and it relates to this landscape here. Yeah. And, and I'm sure too, the, you know, your ancestors are, are Nordic, right? Like basically going back as far as you know. So it, is that true? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm uh, ethnically pretty unmixed, uh, but, or almost, I think I'm completely unmixed, but, um, uh, but I also think we should be a little bit careful placing too much weight in, in bio ancestry because it, it can become this, it can become problematic. But. Yeah. No, I was just uh, asking that to say that, you know, your relationality to the specific um, animism of, of your place is probably rooted in your in your in your blood and your cells and your DNA. It's all it's all interconnected, so it probably resonates in a very specific way for you. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not too in love with with uh, bringing DNA into this because um, because humans move quite a lot historically and. Um, and we, and our, our genome, uh, does change. I mean, we do look different, for instance, in different parts of the world, but, but our, I, I don't think that, I think that genomes change at an extremely slow pace compared to the, the speed of human migration. Even if you look at a very long period of time, like, is it, 10, 20,000 years ago that, uh, that indigenous Americans uh, migrated into uh, North America through the Bering Strait. I think from a, um, a genetic point of view, uh, that is a, a, a moment. It's a glimpse in time, 10,000 years. Um, so I'm a little bit 
careful with the the I'm cautious with with the the genetic perspective also because it uh, it it very quickly can veer just in English veer into ideas of race for instance where uh, like uh, my sister was adopted from Korea uh as a child so is she less legitimately danish than me <laughs> does she have a less of a uh of a uh, a right for instance to feel connected to the landscape she is like culturally of course she's fully as danish as me she grew up in exactly the same so so yeah just to say i'm i'm a little bit <laughs> i'm a little bit yeah, no. cautious with that um that yeah, no, perspective. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. I think I was saying DNA almost as like a modern way just to say bones, like you feel it in your bones. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not being very precise with my language. Though, and I think that's people. like, that's an important point. Like if we say, for instance, when we want to say stuff like essence, like you feel, you feel an essential connect connection to something, then that is I think that in in some cases that's a very good <laughs> in some cases it's a very good way to speak but we but we need to be very very cautious about what metaphors for essence we uh, we use see what right. I'm saying <laughs> yeah 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 well and what comes to mind is uh you know I grew, I'm about three generations um American my gen, you know going back to my great great grandparents uh, American, but my lineage is from Ireland. And uh, my first time going back to Ireland, specifically the county where uh, my father's family is from, it, I don't know if it was imagined, but it just felt very resonant in my body. Like it just felt like a, when I inhaled the air and, and smelled the grass and walked around and went to the cemeteries, it just felt very alive. And uh, yeah, like, like a place that I've been before. And of course, this all could just mm. be my me projecting that on, you know, going back to my quote unquote homeland where my, uh, ancestors are from, but, uh, yeah. So, and it's important to acknowledge that experience, uh, it's important to, 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 to not, uh, or to be able to, um, embrace that experience or bring it into how we are understanding ourselves today as transatlantic Creole mixed people who are uh, uh, kind of uh, inventing uh, ourselves into, uh, you know, contemporary, respectful, hopefully decolonial self-image. in Nordic animism uh, do you see it as a spiritual practice or a cultural practice or where, where are the uh, lines Spir or lack thereof hmm, I think that would probably be lack thereof <laughs> um, okay. I think I sometimes use the word spirituality or religiosity uh, uh, and I think those words are 
good because they they uh, they do have somewhat of a stigma, particularly in Europe, perhaps more here in Europe than than in America, and that stigma is a problem that should probably be dealt with because it comes from the way that uh, modernity has been used to uh, reject specific ways of knowing uh, as uh, kind of woo 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 uh, uh, hippie stuff, you know. Uh, and I think there's an importance to perhaps uh, resist uh, that tendency of rejection somehow. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that the important concept in the practice of uh, a, well any kind of animism is uh, reciprocity and relation that that you're building a reciprocal relationship with others around you and these others can be human or they can be other than human uh, of different sorts and that thing about uh, for instance uh, physical embodied giving like if you have a uh, an ancient grave mount in close to your the place you live and you are actually giving it a bowl of beer uh, uh, to the the spirits that live in that that site then you know the bowl of beer is important uh, it's not just an, an imagination. The, the the actual giving itself is important, and that creates a reciprocity where you are uh, where you are entering into relatedness. And I think that our common modern perceptions of the world often makes this weird, and that is something that we have to perhaps forget about or push out of our minds a little bit and just go into that giving and uh, and receiving which is which is animist so uh, and this sometimes these forms are there in perhaps potential form or that it's often it seems they're under the surface in our culture so if you look at normal North European seasonal culture, for instance, you find a lot of these traditions that are really very beautiful traditions of engaging others in the land. Um, a, a beautiful example from North America is Halloween, where people are carving these jack-o'-lanterns that are simultaneously, they are an offering of a crop because these pumpkins they're, they're crop of course but they're also monstrous there's something monstrous about them so they somehow represent an underworld that at that time of year is opening its it, it, its gates so the dark time is coming to us so it, there is an a, a, a unity between life and death in that image of the of these these pumpkin heads right and you're lighting a candle inside it that is a candle that it is as if you're lighting a candle in the underworld inside this monstrous being perhaps associated with death which is at the same time ultimately life-giving it is actually a piece of crop life-giving sustenance now that kind of density of symbolism is uh i think it's 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 core in animist relating and when we look at for instance stuff like folklore uh we find a lot of it and 
we can, some of it we can just take out and use again. Like these jack-o'-lanterns, that is an example of stuff that is a very, very live uh, contemporary tradition, but a lot has also been lost. Uh, but sometimes it can be, it can be taken back into our normal celebrations of, I don't know, Christmas or Midsummer or uh, November Day or whatever we, you know, celebrate. Yeah, that's true. It's it's like there's all of these um, almost like shadows of animism in our in our popular culture, and um, it, it's just a matter of maybe spending time with them and deconstructing them and doing the research on where they come from. And you know, you mentioned Halloween, and um, uh, as an American, I'll say we're a very death phobic culture. Like we basically don't talk about death. It's a very taboo subject to talk about. Yet we have this very popular holiday these days it's like super you know it's uh, it's 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 up there with like christmas and thanksgiving now with like how how much it's advertised on tv and you see it in the stores and this celebration of getting your costume ready and find you know for for children and adults nowadays mm-hmm. um so it's yeah it's 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 interesting these sort of maybe these these portals into animism that that are there we just have to maybe go through them a bit more to, to rediscover what it's, what can be about. Yeah. Okay. So Halloween is also growing in, in North America. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what has happened here is actually that we have imported Halloween from North America because we used to have all Hallows celebrations that were kind of the same, but they died out. And then people have started to, to celebrate uh, North American Halloween, which is, it, it, it's it's kind of a, a renewal actually of culture that that basically used to be there, um, and I think animism often works like that. That there are aspects of renewal in 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 contact between different cultural spaces. Mm-hmm. And in terms of animism as a spiritual practice, I'm just curious too. In in Denmark and Scandinavia, is it? like on forms and things like that, like government forms? Is it like something you can actually put down as, as a religion? Is it like an accepted um, religion? No, no. no. Uh, I think in Norway, some people have started an animist, uh, an animist um, kind of offic- officially acknowledged religion. Uh, but uh, that doesn't exist in Denmark. What there is is uh, is uh, there's neo paganism or also true, um, which is somewhat of a different yet related thing uh, because this this is a thing that focuses very much on the the pre Christian the specifically pre Christian part of our animist tradition you could say which is also extremely rich and beautiful and fascinating in all kinds of ways so it's very understandable. Um, but uh, but it, I'm not sure that all uh, of these are so true heathen uh, new pagans that they necessarily understand themselves as animists. So it's it's kind of a its own its own kind of category. And what are some of the sort of day to day things that one as an animist does? Like you know, it, it, uh, are, are there rituals or? Um, readings or prayers you know it's a very basic <laughs> maybe ignorant question but i'm just kind of curious like how does the how does it the day how does the animism come through in a day-to-day sense well i think today we are very much in recovery uh which means that that um there isn't a lot 
like it's not like if you if you become a a Buddhist or a Hare Krishna practicing Hindu, um, that that then there is a, a set uh, a complex of rituals that you can then sort of start uh, performing, and then you are basically in the flow of of, of uh, uh, performing that kind of spirituality or or internalizing that spirit kind of spirituality. That isn't available in the same way because many of these practices have been uh, ejected, basically rejected from our culture. So a lot of it is gone. Um, what I'm trying to do is sort of trying to bring back some of these practices and uh, stuff like, like I mentioned the beer before. The idea that, 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 that beer is a basic a uh, vessel of connectivity in a similar way as tobacco is for specific indigenous Americans. That is something that can be applied in con- contemporary life. Like if if an Ojibwe Native American brings tobacco in, 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 in his hand when he visits an elder, we still bring a bottle of wine when we visit each other. That each other—that's today's high-status alcohol, right? But you know, if we start bringing beer and bringing it with this consciousness that that exchange is is uh, a fundamental connectivity that we are working with, which is found fundamentally is uh, flowing out of uh, the spirit of the earth, basically, because it is made out of. Uh, the produce of the earth and the spirits in that in that uh, alcohol comes from from uh, these incredibly sacred actually processes of distilling and kind of invoking out actually these uh, this uh, yeah the spirit of the earth. Now this is something that you can work with today, right? It's something that you can bring into practice. It is about understanding it and bringing it out. I would say the same with some of the holiday traditions that uh, that I have been um, uh, talking about. I actually wrote a book about that, um, and uh, basically to to use the the wheel of the seasons as a as as basically as a path back into some of these these uh, practices. Um, another. Um, um, thing that I have become aware of, which is, uh, I think, incredibly beautiful and has been a really important part of uh, people's life, is the uh, sacred fire, the treatment of specific fire, and that can be uh, a hearth fire in the house, or it can be uh, a seasonal pyre, or it can be um, Christmas lights to basically... uh, uh, take the sacrality of fire back because there's been a lot of sacred fire uh, among uh, Europeans. It's it's a very characteristically European thing and you find it among all, all kinds of peoples, of course, sacred fire, but it, you just find it among Europeans a lot. So th- this is, these are concrete little things that it, that technologies that I'm sort of trying to, to, bring back somehow and make available knowledge of them for people, hopefully to somehow use or apply in their, uh, in their daily life lives. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it, the, the things you're describing, they sound new and novel, but obviously we're, we're talking about things that 99.9% .9 of our ancestors did who were also animists, you know, like we're, we're the, uh, in the vast majority in terms of, of being non-animist in our relation to uh, the more than human and nature and, and each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Animism is, is the animism is the rule <laughs> in, in in cultural history, and uh, the the idea that the idea that humanity is encased in uh, in in loneliness uh, in cosmic loneliness that is an exception in in the history of of humanity. So, and that's also why the in a sense it must be available to to move back you know and so i think some some um like some kinds of culture is um it ought to be possible to make it available like um there's an uh, indigenous american author named robin wall kimmerer who's describing uh, she's very much into plants and she describes the relationship to plants and the close relation and the gratitude, this culture of gratitude and, and, and reciprocity when receiving life from plants, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's... Braid, braiding uh, sweetgrass is her yes, well book about braiding, that. Yeah. Braiding sweetgrass, exactly. And it is beautiful. Um, and But as I mentioned before, you know, if we think with Robin Kimmerer's uh, perspective and look at a European culture, uh, we, we find, for instance, stuff like this celebration for the rye, that plant which is giving life to people. Uh, we find practices of what Robin Kimmerer calls the honorable harvest, that you are not taking everything, you're leaving something out there in the fields. Uh, we find stuff like very close relationship with plants in the landscape. Uh, I read about the, uh, the, the, um, an important plant relation in Southern Scandinavia, the elder tree recently, which is a plant that has been used for myriads of, uh, of, of purposes in people's lives. I think I counted more than a hundred different medicinal purposes that were described in the text that I had. Uh, I think around 30 different culinary uses, uh, from, from this single plant. Now that, uh, that closeness and proximity in the relation to those beings that give us life, I think that is something that we can, we must find it again. Um, and here I'm talking about plants. Uh, we could also talk about animals. Now, one thing is that, that you know, some uh, uh, choose to uh, live as vegetarians or vegans. And I think that's, uh, I totally understand that choice. Um, but if we look at animist relation to uh, to, for instance, hunt, hunted animals, then there is a, a, a relation of uh, respect, which is absolutely foundational. Uh, I went to northern Norway um, some months back and visited uh, a Sami man, uh, a guy from the indigenous uh, population of northern Norway, 
who grew up as a traditional reindeer herder, herder. and for him, the uh, like for instance, the act of killing animals in order to eat them is very normal. But also, you know, when he described this, he he described it as a very uh, like a, a very deep act of respect that and and it is not something you enjoy doing but there's a very deep uh, relation of respect that is going on in that now if if we think about the um the conventional industrialized meat production system that we have today then that is gone it is a very uh, atrocious way of dealing with these beings that are giving us our life by be- becoming meat um when when you look at pigs for instance i'm from denmark i grew up in denmark i grew up in a pig farm the um uh, denmark has six million uh human people and produces 30 million pigs for slaughter annually 30 million for a population of six million people uh it's it's grotesque um, when we, if we roll back time and look at our relation to that particular animal back in time, you would find that Freya, the goddess of love, she was named Sir in Old Norse, which means the sow. Uh, so there is an, an extreme devalorized. Today, sow would be one, some of the most ugly thing you can even imagine saying to a woman. So the the uh, there's an extreme devalorization of our relation to that animal that goes together with this very uh, atrocious way of actually relating with that animal. In two generations or three generations ago in Northern Europe, people would ceremonially apologize to a pig when slaughtering it in the same way as an Inuit hunter in Greenland would apologize to the soul of a seal after uh, after killing it. Now that respect relation is is absolutely gone, and I think that that uh, stuff like that, respecting the beings that give us life, be that rye or be that pig or be that you know the elder tree, these are things that are so intuitive that it must be possible to bring them back into uh, pra- into practice, into common practice. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, the um, the examples you're giving of of connecting with the earth, the more than human, I, I think, are all great. And I'm wondering, can we expand this to the way we we relate to each other. So are there animus practices that can deal with some of the psychological and societal things that are plaguing us? Like you mentioned loneliness or polarization. Um, Even, you know, with San, we've been working a lot with individualized trauma, with the the wisdom of trauma film. Are there methodologies, do you think, in animism that can be applied to these, um, these problems we're having as a society? Yeah. <laughs> the answer to the question yeah. is yeah. Right. Um, Next question. Uh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm kind of inspired by this uh, Australian thinker, um, Tyson Junkerporter, original Australian thinker, who yeah, he's suggested at at Sand a few times. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. He probably has. <laughs> uh, like he is suggesting that we think about um, 
culture in terms of um, the laws of uh, is it called inertia in English or entropy? Entropy, um, uh, yeah. Inertia is like the forward momentum of a of a thing. Entropy is like the breakdown over time. Yeah, of yeah, exactly. Systems. And yep. and he he's talking about the two different laws where uh, the the basic law is connectivity and transformation, which is the one that that uh, many indigenous peoples operate their reality by, and the 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 second law, the entropic. Uh, way of functioning is that if you take a system and you and, and you close it and you have energy in there, then that energy will atrophiate. It will kind of dilute. Um, and the thing is that in throughout history, there's been a tendency towards more and more entropic way of ways of building our culture. Right now, today, for instance, we have. Uh, nationalisms. They are very entropic. Being Danish is being part of this uniform mass, which is inside a container called Denmark. And that is uh, different from being German. And there isn't kind of a, a there isn't a, a, a mixing space in between. These are two different jars. Um, and uh, I think that that many of the Many of the the, the, the the ways that we perceive ourselves and that we perceive our world are uh, they float flow out from this idea of entropy. Um, modernity, the modern world and the way of uh, of perceiving reality in the modern world is monumentally entropic. It is very focused on non-relation. Right, that is nowhere more so true <laughs> than our uh, subjectivities. We we are we are kind of living inside these little shells where I am inside this shell of me, and then there's this whole alien world outside me. Right, that is the modern way of of building a subject. It's entropic because there's this clear distinction that it's a non-relation. Now, I think we see that manifesting in problems in our time. We see tendencies towards um, nationalisms, for instance, that are growing. Uh, we, we also see the identitarian left wing uh, kind of leaning into nationalist perceptions of reality, uh, and that produces problems. The um, uh, uh, now, when, for instance, like me, you're talking in, in public space about stuff like Nordic past, you get a lot of attention from bad people. <laughs> you know, I, I cancel a lot of, <laughs> I cancel a lot of people from my platforms because they, they may be, I don't know, racists or something like that, you know? Uh, so I don't, I basically don't want them to, uh, to, uh, co-opt what I'm saying and, and kind of bring it into their um, uh, their way of, of seeing things um, and uh, th that 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 is a result I think of entropic thinking
what are some of the aspects of animism then that can help us get out of this entropic system that uh, Tyson and you are talking about? Well, one particular part uh, I think is uh, is uh, um, modes of self-image that build on relation to others around us rather than the, uh, what do you say, the nationalist idea of an, an entropic container. So if instead of postulating a contained sameness, we uh, understand ourselves as related to something other, then we're moving towards an animist way of building self-image. Uh, so if you have animist groups somewhere, you often have these relations to, uh, you have to totemic groups. A totemic group is basically a family group that includes some humans and something else in the world, right? So you have a group of humans and ravens, and that's a, uh, that's a raven clan that includes both humans and raven uh, members. Um, so that that is one non-entropic, I think, way of, of trying to build self-image in our time. Um, another uh, aspect which might be relevant to, uh, to your podcast here is the, uh, the aspect of trauma. Uh, and uh, perhaps I should just <laughs> start by disclaiming that I'm speaking here as a person who's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist and as a person who's very non-traumatized. Um, I have a, a friend who's actually a trauma, um, uh, taking a trauma education, and he's saying that I'm one of the most non-traumatized people he knows. Um, I was once almost lynched in... Um, in uh, uh, interior Angola, and um, I did a, a PTSD test after that, and I hadn't accru accrued any traumatization from it. Uh, and this is not to say that I'm a super solid, cool person or anything. Like I think everybody has breaking points and so on. It, it, it's just to say, just so you know, that I'm a non-traumatized person talking about trauma now. <laughs> um, so you're people are, were chasing you and trying to string you up to hang you to death, you mean? No, 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 no. Uh, I'll, you you want to hear the story? <laughs> yeah, sure. Before we get into trauma. Well, yeah. it's just, it, I was working for an, a humanitarian, uh, I was working for a humanitarian um, uh, agency and uh, a uh, horrible accident had happened where uh, a lot of people had died that were implied employed by our organization and uh, in that part of the world people want to bury their dead immediately and that wasn't possible because of some uh um what do you call it um admin administrative stuff that was going on and that meant that a, a crowd of people like almost attacked basically our headquarters okay. so we had okay. to hide <laughs> okay so, yeah. uh, so uh, anyway so that was just that story yeah my point here is just that that the 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 specific language about trauma that i often hear um i feel that it that it 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 ten, it, it has the potential of enforcing the entropic understanding of self so that in in the modern understanding of subjectivity we already have the 
bounded subjectivity, right? But today it is as if the bounded subjectivity is come, becoming even more bounded, as if the, the, the borders, the bounds are becoming almost brittle or hard. So people have very strong reactions to each other and to, uh, to seeing other, to perceiving other. Uh, and that is, in a sense, very non-animist. If you look at uh, animist culture, often there will be initiation rituals. And these rituals, they serve to make, do the opposite to your subjectivity, to make your subjectivity porous, to make so your subjectivities kind of softer and more relational, less hard, less brittle, less overreactive, uh, because that is how you get in the, in the direction of an animist perception. So if you want to perce perceive yourself as in relation with uh, the world around you, then then your subjectivity has to be molded. It has to be sort of uh, opened to that perception. Now, that process is almost in principle transgressive, which is why if you look, for instance, at indigenous initiation rituals, they often are rather transgressive. There are aspects of violence. There are aspects of humiliation. Uh, and... Uh, and, and these are, I think, ways of making subjectivity more perceptive or more uh, relational, basically. And that is something that I think our culture today needs. Right. So one example of this initiatory culture, you, you find, for instance, in the Nordic heritage, there is an Eddic poem, which is a, an ancient poem from the Viking Age, which is called the Hundluljoth. And this Hundluljoth describes an, an, an uh, initiatory process. So there's almost like a sadomasochist situation where there are these two really, really badass goddesses that are demeaning and humiliating this young man who's being initiated somehow, whose name is Ottar. And they're just demeaning him throughout the whole lay he's being uh, humiliated. And in the end, he drinks poison and his, his, his world collapses and so on. And that breakdown of his subjectivity then inscribes him in relationship with the uh, the other than human world. So the end of the poem inscribes him and, and kind of recounts all the part of the world, which is now his family, which is now his kin. And these kind of this kind of uh, culture, I think, has been lost to us. And when we talk about trauma, I think the loss of the relational culture is part of the reason that we become so traumatized today, that our, our subjectivities become so brittle because these, for instance, initiatory uh, processes and cultures are not available to us anymore. And then uh, I think that is somewhere at the root of trauma. Did, did that make sense what I was saying? Here? It did. It did. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're weaving a lot of really beautiful concepts, but also sort of practical ways to connect with, with animism. And um, so with that in mind, if someone is, feels called towards animism, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have links to your website and to your books and things like that. But are, are there some other resources you could recommend for someone to, who's basically knows nothing about animism, but wants to get started with it? Well, I think that in the last uh 
decades, what has happened is that a lot of these rather amazing indigenous writers have started to be basically heard in cultural spaces. You know, when I was a youngster, the only thing we had was Chief Seattle's speech, if you know what that is, which is kind of, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's a forgery, actually. It doesn't have anything to do with any, didn't have any, ever, ever had anything to do with any indigenous Americans. It was created by some hippie in the 1970s to lend credibilities to an uh, environmental message. But today, there are these amazing voices like Robin Kimmerer that we spoke about, Tyson Junker Porter, who has spoken uh, spoken here many, many times, uh, David Kobanawa, uh, an Amazonian guy, um, what's his name now, uh, Malidoma Somme from uh, West Africa. There's so many of these indigenous voices that are uh, that are being heard uh, and are available. You can get you can get access to this stuff fairly easily. And I think that reading that stuff and trying to apply it on, for instance, our own cultural uh, uh, background is, is an incredibly enriching path um, to, towards uh, realizing, um, realizing our, our animist potential in our culture. And I think but but there are not a lot of people who have thought exactly along the lines that uh, that that I'm doing here. It's starting to come. You're starting to find uh, uh, people who are thinking along these lines, and uh, and of course, there's a lot of neo paganism and so on. Graham Harvey that I mentioned before has some wonderful books about animism, uh, respecting the living world. Animism respecting the living world is a wonderful book. Um, so yeah, I I. <laughs> recommend those sources. Nice. And yeah, and I recommend people check out your website and you have YouTube channel, which you're frequently updating, uh, adding videos on. Um, any other projects coming up this fall you wanted to mention that people can get, connect with you? Um, yeah, I'm, I have an, an online uh, seminar on uh, autumn animism coming up on October 1st. And uh, I also, uh, I'm going to uh, publish uh Every year I'm publishing a Nordic Animist calendar that is coming out for the following year. And you can also find that one on my website. Um, let me think. I think that's that's kind of that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rune, for being on the show today and for imparting us with such deep wisdom about Nordic animism. Thank you very much for bringing me in. It was super nice to, uh, to uh, chat to you, Michael. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.